All right. Would you turn with me this morning to Mark chapter 1, the beginning of Mark's gospel. And read along with me. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The word of the Lord. So today is the first Sunday in the Christian season that's known as Epiphany. And during Epiphany, we celebrate the fact that Jesus as Messiah has been revealed to the world. Jesus as Messiah has been revealed to all kinds of people, not only to Jews, but also to Gentiles. And this season began this past Wednesday which was the actual day of Epiphany. And on the day of Epiphany, the text or the story or the part of Scripture that we look to is the coming of the wise men or the Magi. It's traditionally the day that the church celebrates that event happening, which by all accounts was probably some time after the birth of Jesus. This wouldn't have been the night that Jesus was born. By some accounts, it could have been two, three years later that these men arrived. And these wise men, where'd they come from? Well, the scriptures say they, they came from the east. And so more than likely, these were not Jews. These were uh, people that would be thought of today maybe even as being Asians. Um, and, and they came from the east. As we know, they brought Jesus these gifts, but they came to do what? They came to worship him. They said, we saw his star in the sky and we've come. Something significant has happened here. Like they came recognizing that a king had been born. And so the epiphany is not just the fact that that event happened. The epiphany is that this Messiah is for all people. Like he has been revealed as Lord, as king to both Jews and Gentiles. And so as you think about those things today, in this first Sunday after the Epiphany, we turn to the account of Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River by John the Baptist, and it also was this miraculous like mass event of revelation, wasn't it? Jesus is baptized, he comes up out of the water, and there's literally, I mean, it's one of the few times in Scripture where this happens, there's literally a booming voice from heaven that resounds, and, and people hear this, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So I want to do a couple of things today with this text. First of all, I want to try to answer some like frequently asked questions about John the Baptist and about Jesus' baptism, and, and namely, if Jesus is the Messiah, and if Jesus is sinless, then why in the world did Jesus need to come be baptized by John the Baptist? Another question is, if Jesus 
has not yet died and risen and atone, and in doing so, atoning for our sins, then what is the purpose of John's baptism? Like, why was John out there baptizing people if Jesus had not yet come and like died and risen from the dead for our sins? So, so those are two very common questions that people have, and I want to dig into those today. What did John's baptism really mean? Why were mass crowds of people coming out to him? And then finally, in light of those things, I want us to consider how we worship this king. How do we as individuals, and also, namely today, corporately as a church, how do we worship Jesus Christ. What does that mean? How are we doing that when we come together for times like this, which are formal times of worship? So I want to begin with John the Baptist himself. Who was this? What exactly was he doing? Well, the Bible actually tells us a great deal about John the Baptist. We learn about John the Baptist in pretty much every one of the gospel accounts in the New Testament. Um, we know that John the Baptist was a relative of Jesus. We know that Elizabeth who was John's mother, was a relative of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And we know that she was childless uh, before John's birth and that she was well advanced in years. So she was an, a perhaps even elderly lady when John the Baptist was born. And you will often hear it said that Mary was Elizabeth's cousin, but that's not exactly what the Bible says. The Bible just calls her basically a relative or a kinswoman. And so a lot of scholars think it's, it's, it's okay or it suffices to say they were probably a cousin on some level, but in, in our terms, they might have been second, third, fourth cousins. We don't really know. Um, so, so maybe on some level it's accurate to say that John and Jesus were cousins, but what we know for sure is that they were related in some way. In Luke 1, we get like a full account of the revelation of John the Baptist to his parents. We get a full account of like his birth and the fact that in much the same way that Jesus' birth was heralded, heralded to Mary and Joseph, angels also show up heralding the birth of John the Baptist. And so what the scriptures, I think, would clearly indicate to us from that is that John is not just some prophet. He's not just some preacher. He's not just somebody that has a famous relative. John the Baptist is someone special. And Mark chapter one that we read, Matthew chapter three, both tell us this. This is the one whom the prophet Isaiah spoke of when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So this is one of those times in the Bible where we see prophecy and then we see a very explicit um, explanation for the prophecy being fulfilled. I mean, the gospel writers want us to understand, no, 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 this isn't just somebody. This wasn't just a charismatic, dynamic preacher. This is the guy that Isaiah said would come to prepare the way of the Lord. So John is fulfilling prophecy in and through his life and ministry, prophecy that dates way back to the Old Testament. And he comes doing just what Isaiah said he would do, coming saying, Something's about to happen. The kingdom of heaven is coming near. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. There's someone coming after me who was before me. There's someone coming after me, and like I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals. Like That's how nothing I am in comparison to who he is and what he is. 
And, and I think this is why the Gospels in several places make note of the fact that John is out in the desert. John is out in the wilderness. And it also makes note of the fact that John is dressed in a very specific way. And, and if you've read through the Gospels, you might notice that as being a little bit peculiar. The Gospels do not often really make a whole lot of comment on people's physical appearance or their fashion sense. But with John the Baptist, for some reason, it gets repeated that he's a guy who's out there wearing camel hair. He's wearing a leather belt, talks about what he eats. He's eating locusts. He's eating wild honey. And when I was growing up in the church, John was presented, I think to me, as he's like a weirdo. Like he's like a weird guy who's way out in the desert and he's out there doing strange things and he's dressed funny and he's eating funny food. But the reality was he was simply a desert dweller. He wasn't some weird guy out in the middle of the desert. He's dressed like people who live in the desert. He's eating the same kind of food that people who are living out in the desert out in the wilderness would eat. And I think like the comment, like the emphasis on his clothing and his food here is, is driving home this point that he is fulfilling prophecy. He is a wilderness guy out in the wilderness proclaiming, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And I think part of this also notes it helps us like see the somewhat kind of amazing fact that here's this desert guy that people are flocking to. Like they're coming from all over the country, it said, from the cities, from the suburbs. They're all coming out here into this rural area, into the middle of nowhere to hear just this like seemingly normal rural person who's not even dressed in any kind of fancy way. He's not eating anything particularly exciting. And yet, thousands are coming to him. So why are people flocking to a guy like this? Next, John's work, what he's actually doing, he's preaching, but he's baptizing. That's how he gets his name. In many ways, John's like the original revivalist. If you think about the revival movement of the 1800s and the 1900s, I mean, John's basically out there holding a tent revival, right? He's out in the country. He's out in the wilderness. People are coming to him, and his primary message is this, repent, repent, and believe that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's very simple. Repent and believe that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He is clear. There's someone coming after me. Like something is going on. Something is about to happen. And what he says is, he says, I've baptized you with water, but there's somebody coming after me who's going to like baptize you for real. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So the common question is, what was John's baptism all about? And I think we ask that question because we associate baptism, interestingly, even though, even though this guy's name is John the Baptist, I think most of us probably associate baptism with Jesus, right? Jesus like, is the model for baptism, isn't he? Like When we are baptized, we are buried with Christ in baptism, and we are raised to walk in new life. And that the model or the picture or the symbolic nature of that is rooted in the fact that Jesus went down to death and then rose from the dead. So 
more than likely for most of us, when we hear baptism or think of baptism or wonder what is baptism all about, our minds more than likely go to Jesus. And yet here's this guy who comes before him who's out there baptizing. So what is he doing? The reality is that baptism existed long before John ever showed up long before Jesus ever shows up on the scene. Baptism really finds its roots in the Old Testament law. If you think about it, contained within the law were all of these regulations regarding cleanness and uncleanness, right? So let's say, for example, you came into contact with a dead body. Well, in the ancient Mosaic law, you would have been deemed unclean. And there would have been been a protocol to follow. It's very similar to like coming into contact with somebody who has COVID today. Like there, there are some like commonly accepted protocols that come into place. And one of those things is quarantine, right? So the same thing was true in the Old Testament. If you were deemed to be unclean, maybe you came into contact with a dead body, there's going to be a period of quarantine where you're actually separated from the rest of the community. And just like with COVID, I mean, this had practical health implications for a community, right? If somebody has come into contact with a dead body, it's quite possible they've come into contact with some kind of a disease that they could then bring back into the community. So there was this process. We're going to separate them for a period of time. And then there's going to be basically like a ritual washing that has to take place before you can enter back into the community. So for Jews... They're thinking mind and body here, and and so often we're just thinking about the mind. Jews are are thinking in a much more holistic way than we think, And, and it explains a lot of why we do what we do today with things like communion and things like baptism. It's not just this intellectual thing. There's also sort of this physical thing, this bodily, this embodied thing that's happening as well. And and the same thing was going on in the world of Judaism, even prior to the time of John the Baptist. They were well versed in this notion that there sometimes needs to be a cleansing, both inside and outside of the body. Like both the spirit, the mind, the spiritual dimension of our lives, and then also like the physical dimension of our lives. And they didn't always separate those two things. It was a much more uh, unified thing for them. The actual practice of baptism as we know it today actually emerged within Judaism as a way for Gentile converts to become Jewish. So for Gentiles who wanted to become a part of the Jewish faith, Baptism was this ritualistic, symbolic way in which they renounced their former paganism, they renounced their former sin, or renounced other gods that they had been loyal to, and in renouncing those things, they're also at the same time pledging their allegiance to the one true God. And so it, it emerged as this way for Gentiles to enter the Jewish world. What's remarkable about John, though, is John comes along... He's not saying, hey, Gentiles, you need to repent and believe in God. What John's saying is, hey, everybody. So he's not just baptizing Gentiles. He's baptizing everyone, Jews and Gentiles, anybody who would come to him and say, I want to repent of my sin, and I want to believe what you're saying, that the kingdom of heaven is coming near. He's baptizing them. But then Jesus walks up. And John clearly knows who Jesus is. 
Not just that this is my relative. John clearly knows this is the guy. This is the Messiah. He at one point says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so Jesus walks up to be baptized. And the picture that we get from the scriptures is that John's immediately like baffled. Like, what's going on here? He says, no, 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 no. You need to baptize me. And, and you would come to me. Like, what's happening here? And here's what Jesus says in Matthew 3. Jesus looks at John and says, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. It's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So Jesus has this acute sense of, here is what the Father has sent me to do. And and it's almost like a list. It's almost like Jesus is ticking off the things on the list that he needs to do in obedience to the Father, much of which, which fulfills prophecy in the Old Testament. But why in the world would Jesus need to be baptized? If Jesus is sinless as we believe him to be, then then what's the point of this? After all, the Bible says that John's baptism was all about repentance. It's all about coming forward and like turning. So what's going on with Jesus here? I want to share, uh, this is from Dr. Jonathan Pennington, who's a professor at uh, Southern Seminary. I think maybe the next slide, a couple over. Oh gosh, sorry. It must not be in here. Here's what he says. He said, we must understand what repentance means. Today, this word often evokes the image of someone on the street corner with a sandwich board that reads, the end is near. Biblical repentance, though, is broader and tuned differently. The call to repent for the kingdom of heaven is near is an urgent invitation to reorient our values, habits, loves, thinking, and behavior according to a different understanding, one rooted in the revelation of God's nature and coming reign. In short, he says, repentance means become a disciple. Jesus repents not in the sense of turning from sin, He says our repentance necessarily includes that peace where Jesus' does not. But he repents in the sense of dedicating himself to follow God's will fully on earth. So we talk about this all the time. Jesus so often said, I only do what I see the Father doing. And so Jesus isn't coming to John saying, hey man, I've got this laundry list of sins I need to repent from or I need to turn from. He's coming to John and in a very symbolic way, he's initiating the commencement of his public ministry. And in a very public way, he's identifying himself with the Father and the Father is identifying himself with him. Does that make sense? So Jesus is officially and publicly saying, I am here. And it's as he comes out of the water that his father says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So don't miss that. Repentance is not just going, man, I've been a bad boy or girl and I feel badly about those things and I need to not do those things anymore. Repentance at its core is about saying, I am turning from following anything else and I am officially aligning myself with God. I'm officially saying, he is my master. 
He is the one I look to. He is the one who guides and directs who I am. And Dr. Pennington's saying, Jesus wasn't turning from past sins. Jesus wasn't turning from former allegiances. Jesus is saying publicly, he is my master. He is the one I look to. He is the one I'm following. And the amazing thing about that is, at the same time, and this is mysterious, Jesus is Lord. At the same time, Jesus is God. And so the question becomes, I think, in light of all of this, what do we do in response to Christ? If, if we see him and if we believe in him, if we, if we want to repent, if we want to believe that the kingdom of heaven has come near in and through Christ, well, John's message remains here. And John's message actually becomes Jesus's message. Jesus's essential gospel message was repent and believe. So what do we do in response to those things? Repentance and belief, by the way, is not a one-time thing. It's meant to be a perpetual thing in our lives. Like we all need to repent and believe every day. We all need to turn from our sin and the things that would draw our allegiance away from God every day. And we need to rededicate ourselves, like reorient our lives around the way of Christ every single day. It's perpetual um, act of obedience that we are called into throughout our lives. So in the same way that Jesus made his association with the Father public, we are also called to do the same thing. In fact, Jesus tells his disciples to go and make more disciples and to do what to them? To baptize them. Right? So this doesn't end with John. It's just getting started. Jesus carries on this act of obedience, this act of repenting and believing. But if you're seeking to repent and believe, a question arises, I think, what does that look like for me as I worship together corporately with the church? What does that mean? What does that look like? Because this is something we also take from Judaism, this notion that we would gather together corporately and worship God in, in this like formal way. I don't know about you, but I grew up in churches where compared to how the church has historically worshiped God in these formal settings, it was very stripped down. Um, for, for me growing up, basically it was, we're going to come together, we're going to sing three or four songs, we're going to listen to a sermon, and we're going to go home. And that's worship. And that was the norm. That, that was all I had ever known. As I started digging into the 2,000-year history of the church, what I learned was that was very different from the way that for most of those 2,000 years, the church has actually come together and worshipped God. I don't know what that was like for you growing up. As we started this process of planting a church and recognizing that we would have weekly corporate worship, like formally coming together and saying, we're here to worship God, we had to ask the question, what does that look like for us? What are our priorities? What are our non-negotiables? If we're seeking to repent and believe and to be obedient to this Savior, then what does it look like for us to honor him as our Lord and Master and as our King for us to publicly align ourselves with his rule and reign? And what we've arrived at is 
what we are calling a modern liturgical mode of worship. And I just want to unpack that term real quick for us this morning. So, so first of all, the word liturgy. Let's start there. That may be an unusual word for you. It may not be a word that you're super familiar with. You see it on our little order of service when we come together. But what does that word mean? That word actually comes from an ancient Greek word that uh, in the most simple terms means the work of the people. So when we talk about liturgy in the most basic sense, we are talking about the work of the people. And I love that. I love that terminology, and here's why. When we gather, when we gather to worship God, the focus is on him. It's not on us. It's not on me. It's not on Justin. It's not on John. It's not as if we're the ones worshiping God and everybody else is watching. That's not the point of it. When we come together, our work, our responsibility is worship. It's to give him glory and honor and praise. That is not a responsibility that falls on some people. It's a responsibility on anybody who would claim to repent and believe. Does that make sense? We are all called to worship the creator of all things. We're all called to worship Jesus Christ as Lord. And just the word liturgy, as opposed to saying what's our order of service or our order of worship, the word liturgy actually emphasizes the fact that it's all of us. It's not just some, it's all of us. And the thing is, in today's American church, the way that a lot of churches are structured in their worship is we come and watch other people do the religious stuff. And we might be invited to sing along the way, but primarily we're watching professional Christians worship God. And what we want to emphasize, what we think is of like the utmost importance is that when we come together, that we all are gathering to worship the creator of all things. And if there are people in our midst who are not believers, then we do want to model for them what it looks like to worship a king. But it's not just me, not just John, not just Justin. It's any of us who would claim to have repented and believed. So, so that's, that may seem subtle to you. I actually think that's a significant thing. The emphasis is not on what's happening on stage, as it were. The emphasis is on the cross of Christ. The emphasis is on him and his glory and what he has done for us on the cross. And so rather than just a pastor or a priest like doing everything, what do we do? We sing together. We pray aloud together. We read scripture aloud Together, we are engaging in worship. We come to the Lord's table together. This is us. We're not here to watch a show. We're not here to be entertained. We're not even here to get something out of this for us, even though I think often we do. We are here for him. We are here for his glory. We are here to honor and worship him. If that's not the point then we are here for ourselves and we all might as well go home. Then what we're here to do, if it's not about that, it truly is pointless. Because worshiping ourselves or making ourselves happy or making ourselves comfortable or just giving ourselves what we want, we do that throughout the rest of the week. If there's any space, if there's any time where the emphasis is not me, 
and what I most want or desire, it should be here. If any space like that exists in your life, it should be here. And the hope would be that by doing this, it actually starts to infiltrate the rest of your life so that Jesus is becoming the center of everything for you. But if he can't even be the center of this time, then we have no hope of him being the center of the rest of our lives, right? It's just not gonna happen. It's illogical. So our labor, our work as we come together is the work of worshiping him. And and so I just briefly wanna talk about a few elements that we think are central to that, are an, are an important part of that. There are things that we do every week, and, and there are ways that we're seeking to align ourselves with God and worship him, in, and honestly, the way that the church has worshiped him from the very beginning. These are not unique to us. These are not things we've come up with. We don't need some fresh new way to worship God. He's already laid it out for us in the pages of scripture. So first and foremost for us is prayer. Man, I had this, uh, if you'll pardon the pun, epiphany a few years ago in the church that if I was not a Christian, if I was like outside the church and was kind of looking in and somebody asked me, hey, what do they, what do they do in there? That if I didn't know anything about anything, I would probably guess that there's some kind of prayer that goes on inside that place. You know, I think the same thing about a, a mosque. Like, I don't know a great deal about Islam. I don't know all the ins and outs. I'm not well-versed in Islamic theology and that kind of stuff. I don't really know what uh, uh, like an order would look like in some kind of Islamic service. But my guess is there's some kind of prayer that goes on in there. And yet, in the churches that I've been a part of over the years, prayer at best was an afterthought. And prayer was often approached in this very unintentional, extemporaneous way that seemed to just be a transition element in the show. It seemed to almost be like a commercial in the show or, or an element that like gets us from one piece of the service to another. You've probably been in these worship services before. If you've ever been to like a big church where it's like we close our eyes to pray and I open my eyes and it's clear that a lot's been going on while I've had my eyes closed. Like a lot of other things are happening. The stage has been changed or there's been some kind of set piece that's been removed or a video has changed or somebody who was on stage is not on stage anymore. And, and I started to ask the question, like, is that the purpose of prayer? Is it, is it like the curtain at the theater so that we can all close our eyes and something else can happen? Or is prayer something else entirely? I've confessed to you guys that prayer for me is one of the most challenging spiritual disciplines in the faith life. Prayer is easily the most supernatural thing that we are invited to do on a daily basis. And so I think most of us are inclined to at least wonder, is this real? Does this really work? Does this actually do anything? But listen, guys, when we come together to worship God, man, he has given us a communication conduit with him. He's not only opened it up, we learn in the scriptures he desires it from us, And he wants to communicate with us as well. It is a two-way endeavor. And if there's no intentionality in our prayer, when we come together to worship him, then what are we doing? Like, what are we doing? And so that's why we have some scripted prayers. That's why we pray together aloud. That's why we do things like pray the Lord's Prayer. 
Like all of these things we're called to do in the Bible, not just to come up here and go, oh, Lord, thank you for this day and thank you for your goodness and oh, everybody get off stage. Okay, amen, let's move on, right? That's not the point. We're talking to the creator of heaven and earth. So guys, prayer has to be central to what we do. Next would be the reading of scripture, the reading of God's holy word. If we believe that this is God's revelation of himself to us, then why have I experienced so many worship services where it's like we barely even crack the pages of scripture? Guys, I've heard so many sermons over the years where a, a pastor or preacher will come up maybe read a verse of scripture and then talk about something else for 30 minutes. That happens so often. God's revelation of himself to us, why would we not be engaging deeply in simply just going, what's on the page here? And so that's why we read the scriptures in the way that we do. We read from the Old Testament. We read from the Psalms, which by the way is the original prayer book of the church. We read from the New Testament. We read from the Gospels themselves. That's a part of our form every single week. Next, we're singing. Clearly, the scriptures call us to honor him with our voices, to lift our praise and our like musical worship to him. Man, it is such a diminishment of worship that in so many churches today, singing is the thing that's called worship and nothing else is, or singing is the thing that's thought of as the worship part of the service, right? All of this is worship. Everything we're talking about, how can prayer not be worship? How can engaging God's word not be worship? It's not just singing, and so we can't lift it up and elevate it above and beyond everything else, and we also can't get rid of it because like, the joy of the Lord should like, spur our hearts to sing, and as we sing the things that we sing, that Christ is our treasure, there's no one like him. Man, that ideally there's something within you and in your spirit and in your heart that wants to affirm that and project it out and say, yes, Lord, that is true. Thank you. Praise the Lord. Like there, as we read the truths in song, as we sing these truths about who Jesus is and what he's done, that there would, something, there would be something stirring in us that says yes and amen. And so we praise him as we sing. The next is that we would confess. As we read every week, the, the Bible calls us to confess to him. The Bible calls us to confess to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. Many of us are almost comedically unself-aware. We don't look introspectively we don't dwell on our shortcomings or our failures. Others of us are on the complete opposite end of the spectrum where it's all we think about. What the Bible calls us to do is actually release those things to him. It's really hard to repent of my sin if I'm not willing to admit my sin. It's really hard to turn from other gods if I'm not willing to admit I have other gods. Like if I can't even say that to the creator of heaven and earth, I can't even say it to a brother and sister in Christ, then how in the world am I going to turn from that and be obedient to him? I, I think because we have potentially grown up in a, like a Protestant setting where uh, a Roman Catholic idea of confession 
has, uh, has maybe turned us off this idea that I would go confess to another person, another human being, and that person would then tell me my sins are forgiven when they don't have the authority or the ability to forgive me of my sins, that our tendency might be to go to the other side and go, I'm, I'm not confessing anything to anybody. Why would I do that? But then it becomes, I don't even confess it to the Lord. I don't even like really confess it to myself. And so I never move past it. I never release it and seeks to put it to death. So putting sin to death begins with confession. Growing in Christ begins and continues with confession. As we said, repentance and belief is this perpetual thing. So every week we come together and at least corporately, we invite you into a moment of silence and say, man, what has God called you to confess to him? Confess those things to him. And then let's pray this together as a body, as as the people of Christ. Let's confess our sins to him and let's remind ourselves. It's not me saying or Justin saying, hey, your sins are absolved. It's us looking to the scriptures and reminding ourselves of the truth that if we confess our sins, he's faithful to forgive them. Praise the Lord. So prayer, the reading of scripture, singing, confession, next the presentation of the gospel or the proclamation of the gospel. And guys, that's the whole point of preaching. I think sometimes we think that preaching is about educating people on the Bible. That's, that's like a sub-point or a secondary outcome of preaching. The primary point of preaching is proclaiming that Jesus is Lord and that no one comes to the Father except through him. Right? If there is no proclamation of the gospel, then you need to go find another church. Right? If, if, if the gospel of Jesus Christ is not being displayed from the stage in word, then you need to be somewhere else. That is the whole point of getting up and talking, is that we would say Jesus is Lord. And that we would let people who might not be aware know that Jesus is Lord. Does that make sense? So in doing that, what we learn is, man, the gospel is throughout the whole scripture. In fact, we see Jesus in many ways throughout the whole scripture. We talk about the overarching story of the Bible, what's sometimes called the meta-narrative of the Bible. As we start looking at that and digging into that, what we find is, man, we can go just about anywhere and proclaim the gospel. And we see the cohesiveness of the scriptures, right? So we do learn more about the Bible, and it becomes necessary for us to talk about things like context and history and all that kind of stuff. But we're doing all of that in service to proclamation of the gospel. Because if we leave here and we haven't heard that Jesus is Lord and that my life should be lived in obedience to him, then again, we all just need to pack up and go home because we're not doing what Christ has called us to do. So finally, the sacraments. The sacraments, there are two historically in the church that Christ has asked us to engage in, and they are communion and baptism. The sacraments are called sacraments. That word, just think of the word sacred, the same root word. These are sacred acts. These are holy acts. They're not random things. They're not uh, inconsequential rituals. These are deeply meaningful things that Jesus himself has called us to do. Remember, we talked about the Great Commission just briefly. Go make disciples of all nations and do what? Baptize them. Now, people would ask, do I have to be baptized in order to be saved? I don't really see that in the pages of Scripture. But my question would be, if you want to follow Christ, why would you not want to be baptized? 
right? If you want to follow his example, if you want to be his disciple and go make disciples in the way that he's called you to, why in the world would you not do this? And it's not just, oh, I need to do this ritualistic thing, much like it was for Gentiles who were converting to Judaism. No, no, no. We think something significant is going on here. Something mysterious is going on here. Like when we come to the table and we talk about the body and the blood of Christ and we come up and again in this very embodied way, we get to experience this. Man, there's something significant in that that I don't think we can downplay. We have to elevate it. We have to continue to make it central, not because I think it's important, because Jesus thought it was important. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Go make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If Jesus says these are central, then they're central, right? So that's why we do this every single week. It's why it's key to who we are as a church. We've added the word modern, modern liturgical. I think we had this up here on the screen. This is kind of how we explain this. The goal of Christian worship is to give glory and honor to God, our author and sustainer. During our Sunday worship gatherings, we're seeking in all ways to direct our attention and affection to God through prayer, singing, proclamation of the gospel, the reading of scripture, the sacraments. We added confession to that this morning. And we say this is modern, and and we just use that word to indicate that we're not trying to be stuffy traditionalists here. It's not just tradition or ritual for the sake of ritual or tradition. Like we're using a screen this morning, right? That's not traditional. I'm not wearing a robe this morning. This isn't a place where you have to like shut up and be quiet, otherwise you're irreverent, right? This isn't a place where you have to be dressed to the nines in order to fit in. And while those things may not be wrong, I I think those things can be significant hurdles for many people. Hurdles that are inconsequential, hurdles that we're maybe putting in place. And we have to think about those things and make sure that there aren't barriers here to people hearing the gospel and experiencing what it is like to worship God. And so let me be really clear in closing I know this is a lot of content this morning. What I'm not saying is that I think other people whose services are structured differently are wrong or sinful or they're doing it wrong. The Bible is clear, guys. What God cares about the most is your heart. It's not what songs are you singing. It's not how was the preaching. It's not did you follow all the steps correctly. What God cares about is your heart. If you and I are not primarily seeking to be obedient to Christ in our lives, then whatever we're doing in worship to some extent is pointless. Right? If we aren't seeking to align ourselves with him as our master. If we're not saying, I want to be allegiant to him, then what does it matter what we're singing? What does it matter? The scriptures would suggest that God doesn't even want to hear your songs if they aren't coming from a heart-seeking obedience. If you don't want to confess your sins, if you don't want to admit your guilt, if you don't want to recognize your hypocrisy, as was the case for the Pharisees, then the scriptures would suggest God doesn't want to hear it. 
you sound like a clanging cymbal. It's just like, it's, it's, it's offensive. It's not, it's not beautiful. It's not melodious. And so for our worship to be sweet to him, it has to come from a heart that desires obedience. Not a perfect life, not a sinless life, but from a life that longs for him to be the center. I will say, though, that I do think that there are people out there who are missing a richness and fullness in their worship. I do think that there are people out there who've been led to believe that the worship is being done by the people on the stage, and I'm kind of here to be a spectator of worship and not like a welcomed participant in the worship of Christ. I think that's happening. I also think that there are people out there who've grown up in high church liturgical traditions who have experienced a, a, like a, a depth and a richness, but they've never been explained why we do these things or what these things actually mean. And so I've been in them, but they're kind of insignificant to me because I don't really know what they're about. Both of those things can be problems. At the end of the day, what we are primarily seeking to do is in the most humble and, and honestly like paltry way is to somehow worship and glorify the maker of all things. Which is ridiculous, right? It's ridiculous that we would even be allowed to do that or even invited to do such a thing. It is crazy that our imperfect and, and sometimes scattered worship would be something that he desires, and, and yet the Bible is clear it's what he wants from us. It's what he wants from us. So this is our public declaration, guys. This is us coming together and saying, Jesus is Lord. And as we sing, as we read the scriptures, as we confess our sins, as we pray together in all of these things, my hope, my prayer is that the intention of your heart would be to leave here encouraged and better aligned with Christ, reminded of his gospel, inspired to live your lives on mission for him, daily repenting and believing that the kingdom has come near in him. And so let us align ourselves with him, his mission, his purposes for our lives. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Father, thank you as always for the truth of your word. And I pray um, as we talk about some things that could seem unique to our church, let us recognize today, Father, that there is a long history of followers of you who have come before us and who have sought to follow you in faith and live by the example of your gospel who have displayed for us what it looks like to live lives of obedience. Not perfection, not sinlessness, but lives of obedience. And Father, in even these simple things like prayer and reading and singing and confessing, God, would you continue to change our hearts, our wicked, sinful hearts? As we do these things, Father, would you remind us that it is purely because we were not good enough and we could not worship you well enough that you sent your only son, Christ, to die for us. Help us to not just hear that, but to hear it. To hear it weekly. And to hear it in a way that affects us and changes us. 
We love you, Jesus. We pray that you are honored and glorified by everything that happens here. We ask this in your holy name. Amen.